Good morning, everyone. All right, how are you? That's good. I'm going to disagree with Josh. Um, I like the warmer weather. It's motorcycle weather. And uh, so I'm not looking forward to it getting colder. And so you can have your cold weather. If you want to go to New York, you can go over there. They have cold weather over there. All right, if you would, raise your hands. If you, uh, if you need a Bible, um, if you don't have one with you today, we'll be in Luke chapter 8. So you want to keep your finger in there. And uh, if you do not have one at home or workplace or wherever it might be, uh, feel free. Take the one we give you. Um, we want that to be a gift uh, so that you have every opportunity to read that daily and come to know God more. George, excuse me, George Whitfield said, study to know him more and more, for the more you know, the more you will love him. Uh, and I found that to be totally true. So if you would turn with me to Luke 8. And we're going to start in verse 26. And while you're turning there, uh, we can continue to pray. Uh, you notice that uh, Pastor Clinton and his family are not here this morning. They are on vacation. This is actually his last day of vacation. He'll be back tomorrow in the office. Uh, and then we'll have all kinds of good fun. But um, they've needed a good vacation. So that's been that's wonderful for them. And uh, we are truly blessed to have had Tim and the team up. And uh, what a great leader and great job he's done, right? Thank you, Tim. Yeah. Luke eight twenty six. <clears throat> then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. Those are always fun, right? Uh, for a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city, or and in the country, and the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they, see, they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone, begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And when, they, when he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. Oh, God of all authority, we submit ourselves to you this morning and plead with you to overcome our sinful hearts that you might fill us with your wisdom and knowledge. Thank you, Lord, for this day. 
that we give to worship and honor you among each other and with your bride around the world. And on this hill, we pray for them as well as they worship alongside of us. God, be present with us this morning as we examine an easily confused text from the scriptures now. May your truth inhabit our lives as you speak to us through your word. Reveal to us, Lord, how we are to respond to the hearing of your word. God, we pray that you would give us the clarity and will to fulfill your mission for us on this earth until you come. We give this time over to you to open our hearts to your voice in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, it's no secret that the presence of evil has been a central theme and topic of discussion for as long as we can trace back in the history of humanity. One of the primary catalysts of Martin Luther's polemic that led to the Protestant Reformation was the preaching of John Tetzel in Germany that sought to use fear and evil to extort funds for the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Evil have, has always been a fearful thing, and yet it's crazy how many people don't believe that Satan exists. Much of that's probably due to the caricature of a red-colored devil with horns and a pitchfork that is actually a satirical denial of the one true Satan. Isn't he cute? <laughs> In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11... I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15 says that even Satan disguises himself and is an angel of light and that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. I might suggest an example of that could be the governor of our state using scripture on a billboard across the country to entice women to come to California in order to end the lives of their unborn children by calling it loving your neighbor. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, uh, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see, Satan looks good. And his disciples follow suit. The deception is real. He attempts to make the disciples of Jesus look like the bad ones. Right? You've heard it. Christians are responsible for so many of the wars in history. Christians are judgmental. Well, Christians don't act like very good Christians at all now. In fact, it's becoming more and more common to paint the Bible itself as something evil. The horns and pitchfork caricature of the devil comes from the Middle Ages at a time in which the people were very aware of the reality of Satan. They also recognized that his greatest vulnerability is pride. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, speaking to Satan, 
says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. In fact, he even appealed to pride in the garden when he tempted Eve, now didn't he? The, in light of Satan's pride, the Christians of the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, invented uh, wild caricatures to make Satan and other evil spirits look ridiculous in order to insult them. That's where you see these gargoyles begin to appear on Gothic cathedrals they were using humor to insult evil as if to say they weren't we or we aren't afraid of you silly wicked dummies uh, and, and it would insult in their minds their pride this brought laughter and joy to the people as they would enter these churches in a dark time in history when people were dying in the midst of plagues and pandemics it's been said that the gargoyles were to frighten evil away, but actually they were really more to laugh them away in shame. The reality is that evil by its very nature intends to appear good. And appealing, or good and appealing rather, much in the same pattern as the serpent, serpent used to entice Eve with fruit in the garden. The 80s rock scene, some of you know it, was riddled with an obsession with the devil. And many bands promoted themselves as rebellious and satanic. For the most part, they were a bunch of posers that just used evil as a way to draw rebellious crowds for profit. But there were many who sought to understand and to engage with some level of dark spirituality as a rebellion against the establishment which they connected with Christianity. The real story is that evil looks wonderful and appealing. Its lure is beauty and meaning. But when evil gets a hold of a person, the results become catastrophic, whether in the moment or in the end. And there are probably several kinds of evil beings, just like there are angels, uh, different kinds of angels, since the demons are fallen angels themselves. This morning's passage deals with evil spirits who have possessed a man with present catastrophic results. And we're going to see that not only Christ has the authority, or rather that only Christ has the authority to drive out those evil beings. Luke 8, 26, it says they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. This account immediately follows the calming of the storm that we read about last week. We've been, we, we may be asking why Jesus had wandered across the Sea of Galilee in the first place, well, it probably was just this event because at the end of this event, Jesus and his disciples just turn around and head back. I can imagine the small talk in the boat as they turn back, right? Like, hey, Jesus, um, hey, so what are your thoughts on no storm this time? We'll, not, we'll just have smooth sailing. What about that? 
right? There's some question about the location of this place too for a few reasons, but all the options are within a relatively small region on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And Luke here is giving some geographical details since his Gentile recipient uh, may or may not know the region very well. The, he, he, the, the, what it looked like was more important than exactly where it was. The disciples on the uh, they, they go up and they beach the boat. Jesus steps out on the land and he's met by this hopelessly demon-possessed man who's naked and homeless, living among the catacombs. And this dehumanized man becomes the object of Christ's compassion here in this pericope. Uh, how often do we do that? How often do we dehumanize somebody in our minds when their situation just seems utterly hopeless and, and we do that in order to kind of quiet down our empathy, right? Because we can't deal with the burden, so we see them as somehow less human than we are, digging in trash cans and whatever, because we can't imagine that kind of suffering in our own lives, nor would we even want to. And yet Jesus meets this man with compassion. Nakedness, of course, is something that indicates shame, and in the Jewish tradition, being in the tombs would be considered a symptom of madness, and the tombs would be considered to be haunts for demons. Even today, if you ever watch any scary movies, they, how often do they make creative use of seminary, or cemeteries? Well, seminary is scary too. I've been there. But um, how, how, many, uh, how many of those make creative use of cemeteries to kind of scare you, to make things creepy, right? But, but Jesus will go into the dark places to meet the lost. Often these are places that Christians tend to avoid. Uh, we, we instead try to lure the lost into our sacred places instead of meeting them where they're at. This man was running around naked among the dead and was under complete control of these demons. They controlled his speech and his actions. Verse 28. When Jesus saw, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds, be driven by the demon into the desert. You see, even, even the enemies of God have no choice but to submit to him. This man falling at the feet of Jesus wasn't genuine submission. It was, the demons were speaking here, they were already damned, right? But even they would have to comply with the command of Christ. Philippians 2, 10 and 11, we've read this many times, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the demons want nothing to do with Jesus but they still have to recognize who he is. It's, it, and it's often asked in this context why a, a good God would send people to hell. Well, here's the thing. Why would God send somebody to heaven and force them to spend eternity in his presence if they hate his presence. The demons hated Jesus. They want nothing to do with him. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
It's not only demons that feel that way. They ask what business he has with them. It's as if they're asking, what good can come to me from contact with you? This is the reality with rejecting Jesus. Those who reject Jesus are identifying in thought with the concerns of the demons. And that's a true statement. And the demons know exactly who they're speaking to. Early in Luke, um, we saw a man with a demon who was actually in the synagogue. So don't think that that can't happen. Luke 4.33, it says, And in the synagogue there was a man who had a, the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. See, the demons in both places confess the identity of Jesus. That's not enough. It is not enough to simply believe who Jesus is. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. And they shudder. And that's exactly what's happening here. The demons believe and are trembling in his presence. One commentator put it, they were conquered, but not converted. <clears throat> in the spiritual realm, we're not dealing with two equally opposing forces of good and evil, like a devil on this soldier and an angel on this soldier, right? Uh, because evil is still subservient to Christ and all of his goodness. In the account of Matthew, there's an additional demon-possessed man. It's not a contradictory thing. It's just that Luke is, and Mark both are dealing with just the one. And, and in Matthew, the demons ask if Jesus had come to judge them before the time. And that's speaking, in that context, about the final eschatological judgment that will occur in the end. David Garland said the demons torment others but want to avoid being tormented themselves. The demons are responding to the same authority that had calmed the storm on the way to this place who is now commanding them to come out of the man. Now don't get thrown off by the singular and plural language that is employed here regarding the demon. It was a possession of a legion of many demons. So that's fine. There's no contradiction. The man was kept under guard and bound with chains, but had some level of supernatural strength, and he could not be contained. This event brings up one of the more important questions about our, or, or rather in our post-enlightenment, post-modern age. There are, there's this question, what, where does the, the, the natural and the, the supernatural intersect? There are two primary, primary impulses that we see today among Christians. Most of us lean one direction or another. The first one is to have an entirely natural explanation for everything. That kind of partly comes from the Enlightenment age. Uh, this is the idea that when God works, he does it through ordinary natural means, and that any spiritual force might be able to influence us, but it has no real power, authority, or ability to control natural, physical things. The second is the opposite. It's to hyper-spiritualize everything. Uh, there's, this is an overemphasis on the supernatural where we blame everything evil on the devil or on evil spirits. Because um, we certainly couldn't come up with evil on our own, right? Like, come on now. Uh, but these are the ones that have a demon for everything, right? They're casting demons out of people that have a chronic cough. Right? They, they tend to think lower of medicine, 
uh, and emphasize spiritual healing, particularly when it comes to things like mental disorders and mental illness. And oftentimes they consider that any of those drugs that help somebody with depression and anxiety and bipolar and schizophrenia, they, they consider that to be something that we avoid. We want to pray, and pray instead, not alongside of. There are even some who still consider epilepsy to be demon possession. We have drugs that will help control the symptoms of mental illness. But the question is how much of things such as schizophrenia are merely natural mental illness rooted in physical, neurological problems in the brain and how much of that might be demonic? Well, first, first thing to consider is you can see all those things in our brain imaging, right? They're very physical. Even something as simple as uh, ADD, attention deficit disorder, or OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, they can, all those, even those things can be seen on a brain scan. But how much of that is because something spiritual, uh, or because there is something spiritual that intersects with the physical, what's causal and what's reactive, Occasionally, that'll become obvious to a believer, and they're able to pray and evoke the name of Jesus for deliverance from something. But it's not always obvious. We don't want to assume that there's nothing demonic in some of the things that we see, but we also don't want to go around casting demons out of all the ADHD kids either. Like they, Sometimes they're just wild kids, right? Doesn't mean they have a demon, right? Uh, the answer to where the spiritual and profane or the supernatural and natural world intersect is, I don't know. But I do know that, if we, that we can start by rejecting an ancient error that we call dualism. That's where we place the spiritual and the physical in two separate categories. We don't want to do that. That's wrong. The spiritual and physical interact with and affect one another. When we separate sacred and secular, we are failing to recognize many of the places where God works and where the enemy tries to thwart God's work. That can even go with music. I can point to some songs that we would consider secular that have better theology than some of the worship music that I've seen promoted in some churches today. Now, don't ask me to do that. I'm not going to call anybody out. Just study God's word, judge it for yourself, and we'll be good, okay? Uh, look, look, look at the authority of Jesus here. What the man who was possessed had no power over, nor did the humans around him have control of, the son of the most high God had complete control over. We need to remember that we do not on our own have any authority. Only Jesus has ultimate authority. Verse 30, we'll continue on in Luke 8. Verse 30, and G Jesus then asked them, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now this is the only place in Luke where Jesus actually engages in dialogue with a demon. He asked the demon's name. And this tells us something about the angelic and demonic realms. Uh, that, that these creatures are created by God, and they are unique persons with unique names. And that's important. Demonic activity isn't just a negative energy force. These are beings who want to personally attack us and draw us from God. And, and in this 
case, this man was possessed by many demons. It's been suggested that the demon speaking to Jesus may have inflated the number of demons that were in possession of the man in order to kind of imply a threat towards Jesus that the demon was flexing, right? Uh, that, that's pure speculation. Because even, even though one of the primary character traits of a demon is dishonesty, the demon still had no option but to answer Jesus. And we're going to see how many pigs were possessed when the demons left him. A legion was a unit of the Roman army, normally consisting of between five and 6,000 men. This was way more than Mary's seven demons that she had been, been delivered of, right? That's a lot of demons. We don't know the exact number, but it was a lot. We also don't know the circumstances of this man's demon possession. There are a lot of things that we know can open someone up to demonic activity, right? Substance abuse, particularly hallucinogenic drugs, certainly could do that. Uh, messing around with the occult, other unbiblical spiritual things, psychics and fortune tellers and uh, whatever. Um, but, but really, any sin can open us up to one degree or another. I don't think the question, I, I think the question is not what can open us up, but what can protect us. I think that's what's important because we don't know all the risk factors except the one thing that will prevent demon possession is a relationship with Jesus. That's because darkness and light cannot dwell together and if Christ dwells within you, a demon cannot. But even as Christians, we can experience spiritual warfare. I think a lot of us up here have seen some of that recently. Some of you have experienced it. Most of the time it presents either as heavy temptation or, or as conflict with other believers. Right? Uh, particularly a spouse. Right? Uh, that, that might be like fighting over things that you'd never fight over. Uh, the enemy can get us believing that if our spouse wasn't so selfish, they would do or say things differently and that they really don't care about how they're hurting us. Um, right? It's how the enemy works. He plants ideas, right? Suggestions. Word of caution, though, don't blame all your arguments on spiritual warfare if you're married. Um, you are two sinners. You doubled the sin when you got married. So know that. <laughs> you don't balance each other out. It doesn't work that way. And definitely, 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 don't tell your spouse that they're believing the devil when they disagree with you. I've learned that that usually goes very badly. And so don't do that. Learn, learn it from me. Uh, demons, the demons beg Jesus not to banish them into the abyss. Poor innocent demons, huh? Like, the Gospel of Mark is more specific. It says they want to stay in the region. And there's some argument over what the demons are referring to as far as the abyss is concerned. Uh, we could go to Matthew and, and, and look at it that way. But some of how we look at that depends on how we see the end times, and particularly the millennium. Uh, and so is this the place that the damned await judgment before the second coming of Christ? Even if you're post-millennial, the Christ, uh, Christ at this point hadn't died yet, so that would, it would work. Uh, 
could it be where Satan and the demons are bound during the millennium? That's probably what most of us would think. Or could it be the place that they're cast in the final judgment? That's a strong possibility as well. Um, if you're not confused yet, let me rattle a few verses off to you and confuse you yet more. Uh, Isaiah 24, verses 21 and 22, says, On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth, and they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit, and they will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. Okay, well let's go to Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then 2 Peter 2, 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, that's the demons we're talking about today pretty much, right? Uh, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So we see that. It continues on from there. Revelation 20, 20 verse 2, we can, we can see here so far that there's a progression as far as God's judgment is concerned, Right? Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then you jump into verse 7. It says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over his broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they would be tormented day and night forever and ever. So as you can see, it can be pretty difficult to really come up with a definitive timeline here as far as judgment, but we do know that nothing good comes to Satan and the demons, and nothing good will become of those who reject Jesus. Hell isn't like this place where Satan's sitting here with his pitchfork ruling over all the inhabitants, ha-ha, like that, right? No. God rules over hell. And all, including Satan, are tormented there. David Garland said, even the demons hate hell. So by the way, repent. Just in case, you know, I, you, yeah, you don't want to be there. Like the demons. So I sure don't. Uh, verse 32. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission and the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now pigs were an abomination to the Jews and Jesus and his, and his disciples were Jewish. So they were unclean in the, in the physical and ceremonial sense. But this man was filled with unclean spirits so it would be appropriate then to send them into what would be ceremonially, physically unclean. Here's a place where we can observe Jesus uh, recognizing the natural and supernatural to be connected in some way. 
And by the way, I am sure glad that pigs are no longer under, unclean under the new covenant because, well, you know. Uh, I've heard it suggested that the herdsmen were Jewish and shouldn't have been raising pigs anyhow. Um, that's not necessarily true. Uh, the region was most likely predominantly a Gentile area. And Mark tells us that there were around 2,000 pigs here. Guys, that's a lot of bacon going to waste. You're right. You knew I was going to bring that up. It's also a lot of demons, isn't it? Even though there's, there's no real mercy for demons, we see Jesus' merciful character come out. And, and, and he's allowed for the request of the demons to be honored here. It seems odd and peculiar to me, but this is his character. Did they go straight to the abyss from there? I don't know. But their future is known. It's been noted by some skeptics that pigs actually are able to swim. Okay. And they ask, why did the pigs drown if they're able to swim? Okay, let's just start with they ran off a cliff. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and who knows what the shoreline was like anyway. I mean, it could be too stiff for them to get up. I mean, you can only swim for so long, right? Jesus accomplished what neither the man nor his community had any power to do. The demons broke human chains, but Jesus broke the chains of the demon that he had against this man. Verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. There's no question that just like when the disciples witnessed Christ's authority to calm the storm, these herdsmen were afraid when they saw his authority over the demons. They witnessed something miraculous and responded perfectly appropriately by fleeing and telling everyone, Verse 35, then the people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the disciples had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Now, people came and they responded. Keep in mind that here is where we don't know how much time had lapsed. It was probably more than just something that happened one afternoon, right? Because the, the, all this stuff happens, and then the people hear the reports, people go out, they tell the reports, and then people come back, uh, and they see this crazy, this, this crazy naked demon-possessed guy now fully clothed and in his right mind sitting at the feet of Jesus. Sitting at someone's feet was a sign of discipleship. Remember that a disciple is one who sits under the teaching of another. So this man who had previously been enslaved to the torment that he was under is now free to obey Jesus. And here, those who observed it were afraid, just like the disciples who saw his authority in the storm. We must remember that it's not inappropriate to be afraid of God when we're confronted face to face with his power. People saw Christ's power to deliver this man from demon possession. It's clearly something they had discovered only God can do. Different translations use words like healed, delivered, cured. The word just means to save. It's not so much about healing as it is about deliverance. 
Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes, this is verse 37, I'm sorry, all, all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. They were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, we'll get there in a minute. Uh, we see a great contrast here between what we read about the disciples in the storm last week and what we see taking place. Well, the similar pieces, just like the disciples, as they had sailed to this place, the people's observation of Christ's power left them terrified. Right? They were scared. But in this case, their fear left them wanting nothing to do with Jesus. Their fear doesn't draw them to Christ, but away from him. And I think there's more to it than the fear of just losing more pigs. If the authority of Jesus can transform the demon-possessed man as it did, it could change them too. And they didn't want to be changed. They were content living the way they were living. And you know, that's, that's how many people today respond to the authority of Jesus. They want nothing to do with them because they don't really want to hand the authority of their lives over to someone greater than they are. In fact, they don't even want to recognize it. They don't want to acknowledge the existence of Christ or to be too close to his people at all because they don't want to acknowledge that there even is a higher authority than themselves. And then they try to invent a Jesus that doesn't look much like the Jesus of the Bible, but looks surprisingly like them in their worldview and values. You ever notice that? Tim McGraw said this. He said, I know if I told you what God looked like and felt like, I'd be telling you a story. Just like we don't know, or I just think we don't know. God manifests himself or herself or itself in a way that we need it in a way that we can grab a hold of and a way we can put our arms around. Huh? <laughs> you remember Mikhail Gorbachev, right? <laughs> our dear Russian friend. This is what he said. Jesus was the first socialist. The first to seek a better life for mankind. Say what? Okay now, Friedrich Nietzsche, you've heard of him. This is what he said. Jesus died too soon. If he had lived to my age, he would have repudiated his doctrine. I'm glad I'm not that dude in eternity. Wow. Right? Mark Twain said, if Christ were here now, there's one thing he would not be, a Christian. I mean, I understand his point, but please now, come on. I would contend that there would be many similar quotes coming from these people on the eastern shore of Galilee. Perhaps they like the idea of Jesus, right? They like the idea of Jesus, but when they're faced with his perfect character and authority, he was too much. They would rather hang on to their ideas of Jesus than cling to the Son of the Most High God. And that's where so many people today are particularly in America where it's still somewhat popular to call yourself a Christian. But as we've seen, being a Christian in America can mean just about anything and rarely has to do with being a disciple of the Jesus that we read about in the Bible. We see here that Jesus obliged to these demons, and, or to these people rather, and got into the boat to return 
to where he had come from. The man who Jesus delivered from a legion of demons begged to go with him. Naturally, right? Like, Jesus doesn't transform somebody's life that way and not finish the job by turning their heart toward him, right? This man was made a disciple of Jesus by the great power and authority of Jesus. But Jesus had other plans for him than he did for the 12. In fact, 38, verse 38 and 39, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus gave him a mission. And that mission would not be in the confines of Jesus' ministry in Israel. It would be within the world that this man had been living in. Jesus didn't call him to change his vocation or his location. He didn't need to. Jesus changed his life. We don't know how old he was or how long he had been possessed, but we can assume that he possibly at one point had a family, a job, and a community at some, some point in his life. And, and Jesus leaves him in the context of that with a mission. And I want you to notice that Jesus didn't send him off to Bible school or seminary. In fact, the man likely was a Gentile with very little exposure to synagogue, if any at all. But he had a story. He had a testimony. And as far as fulfilling the Great Commission, that's a pretty good place to start, isn't it? Matthew 28, 19-20, this is the Great Commission. Jesus speaking to his disciples says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus restored this man to his community. They wanted Jesus gone, but this man could remain to point to Christ in his daily interactions with that community. Not all Christians are called to some level of vocational ministry. In fact, that's not even a better thing. Not everybody's called to missions or ministry in the church or some parachurch ministry. Some Christians have a mission field to their office or their clients or their students to the first responders that they work with or the construction crew. Whatever regular job or vocation they have because <coughs> the sacred and secular intersect far more than we often imagine. I can't call my daily work here at the church offices any more sacred than the ministries of anyone else in this place in their places where God has called them to. That is just as sacred. Jesus tells him to return to his home and declare what God has done. That word declare can be translated to describe. We should also notice the indication here of equality of the Son within the Trinity. Jesus clearly spoke and commanded the demons to leave the man alone, and Jesus gives credit to God. Notice that he doesn't say the Father. And, and look how it's recorded in Luke. It says, uh, as he was getting, uh, I'm sorry, in Mark uh, 5:18 to 20, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you 
and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Tell him how much the Lord has done for you and how much mercy he's had on you. Jesus is pretty clearly here implying his own divine nature because who did that? Who cast the demons out? Jesus, the Lord. Who was merciful to man? Jesus, the Lord. We don't even need him to, to tell us this because he clearly has authority that only God has. But Luke and Mark include that just in case there's any question. It's sad to see how many Christian churches avoid topics like sin, hell, and repentance. Listen, there is evil in this world and it affects us. And yet so many pastors have fallen into the trap of tickling itchy ears with what people want to hear. But if we're not confronted with our own sin, which is wicked, we will not be confronted with the need to repent. And if we do not repent of our sin, we will not inherit the kingdom of God and will face the same peril as these demons. This man was damned. He had no hope. But the people in his community faced the same problem. It just wasn't as obvious. The issue was, though, that they saw how horrible the condition of this man was, and they knew he needed help, but they wouldn't acknowledge their own need. But also notice that the willingness of the demon-possessed man was not the issue. Jesus was going to do that work. And the question is, was the willingness of the people an issue? How is it that Jesus can have complete sovereign control over the demons and the man they possessed and yet not have the same authority over a merely resistant heart? Some of us have different ideas on how God works within those parameters, and that's fine. But keep in mind that this man was left to describe and declare the work of God among these people. So for some of these people, it may not have been an issue of if, but when God was going to overcome their hearts and deliver them from whatever sin was in their lives. So through this demon-possessed man, there was hope. That's why it's so important as Christians that we do not compartmentalize our lives into sacred and secular, nor that we avoid either one. Those of us who have repented and placed our faith in Christ are not of this world. We are heirs to the kingdom of God, but we are still in this world, and we're called to engage with our culture and our society. Right before Jesus went to the cross, he prayed for us. And this is part of what he says in John 17, 14, as he prays to the Father. He says, John 17, 14 to 17, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. In the truth, your word is truth. If Jesus prayed for us not to be yanked out of the world, we shouldn't either. And just like this man, Jesus has left us here with a mission. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. All this is from God, who through Christ, though Christ through rather, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message 
of reconciliation. As we enter our time of communion, I want us to reflect on that idea that Jesus took our sin upon himself and left us here to participate in his redemptive purposes, to participate in our missio day, to participate in reconciling the world to Jesus until he returns. If you're not a Christian, that means you have not repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus. We would ask that you would just let the bread and the cup pass you by. Because the Bible tells us that if we receive this meal in an unworthy manner, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. And we don't want to do that to you. So please, uh, for the sake of God's grace, allow that to pass by. But if you are in that position, I would ask that you would please consider surrendering your life to Jesus. I would love to pray with you after the service. If, if you're ready to be a disciple of Jesus, the, the Son of the Most High God, you can talk to me, you can talk to Denise over here, any of our leaders here in the church, Josh is over here, I think Kevin's back there, Phil's back there, Bill's back there. Um, please pray with one of us. We would love to um, tell you more about Jesus. And so right now, I'd like us to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper. Let us pray. Our holy, perfect God, we ask that you would help us to see your great power and authority in our lives and to respond by proclaiming your goodness. God, we bow humbly at your feet. May you give us passion to publicly honor you in all that we do. May we always be aware of what you have delivered us from. Oh God, we thank you that even when we were helpless entirely, you were working a weight of glory in us that we might have hope through knowing you through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Help us, oh God, to resist sin and temptation. Deliver us from the evil one and fill our hearts with great joy as we trust your authority in our lives and in the lives of those around us. God, be present with us now as we prepare to receive this communion that is set before us. Lord, we thank you that Jesus has removed from us that great debt of sin and called us to follow him in his mission. Thank you, God, that by your grace, the blood of Jesus was poured out on that wretched, and yet, beautiful cross. Lord, humble us now as we prepare to receive this holy feast in the name of our Lord Jesus, the Son of the Most High God.